Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My, na- my name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased, indeed honored, to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Exeter. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written well over 150 books. And today we're discussing one of his latest books, How the Army Made Britain a Global Power, 1688 to 1815, published by Casement. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? The book is an attempt to emphasize the role of the army in Britain's uh, external and indeed internal development in this period. And in doing so, I'm not trying to downplay the Navy, but I'm simply arguing that the emphasis, totally understandable on the Navy, has sometimes uh, led us to underrate the achievement of the Army. How much continuity, or discontinuity for that matter, was there in the British Army before and after the Glorious Revolution of 1688? Oh, well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, there was a considerable amount of discontinuity in a number. Uh, obviously, some people went off with James II, James VII of Scotland, um, but more particularly because William III and the um, outbreak for Britain of participation in what Americans call uh, the War of the League of Augsburg, what we in Britain more commonly call um, the um, Nine Years' War, this ensured that there was a far larger army, so there needed to be new officers in those positions, and also ensured that William, in order to establish himself and have those he regarded loyal to him, had brought over Dutch and Danish uh, forces, Huguenot officers as well, and a certain number of these people were put into the newly expanded army. So it's a different army, and there is discontinuity. I mean, as you know, people tend to focus on John Churchill, later first Duke of Marlborough, um, who is a figure of continuity uh, between um, James II and the subsequent period, but he is not completely typical. I think that's a... Uh, Let me ask you, uh, as compared to, if we're talking about the period before 1789, as compared to uh, other so-called ancien regime armies, how would you you say the British army was in terms of social composition in the officer corps? Well, it's not as egalitarian, though that obviously is a word that has very limited meaning for this period. So let's say it's not quite as egalitarian as the Navy, because obviously commission purchase it doesn't play the same role in the Navy. But on the other hand, you could go a long way in parts of the army 
without any particular money behind you or any particular social position. I mean, in essence, and I think this remained the case, well, I know it remained the case into the 19th century and into the 20th century. Um, the cavalry was socially exclusive in its officer corps, um, while the um, ordnance, what we would call the artillery, the supply side, was really not. And the infantry came in between, very much depending in part also on which uh, infantry regiments you were thinking of. So there are, it is a t uh, career open to talent, and that is accentuated by the unusual nature of the British Army among Ancien Regime European armies, which is its very extensive military service outside Europe. Um, much of this service, uh, often in, due to disease, particularly in the Caribbean and in India, but this also took people away from their uh, domestic interests and therefore was more commonly something that people who were, uh, as it were, professional and professionally ambitious would seek to do. So I think there is a significant difference there in tone, in mission and in composition to that of if you like, an archetypal Ancien Regime European army, although one has to accept that an archetypal European army means very different things if you're looking at France or Prussia or Russia and so on. Was the improvement of the British Army's performance in the war of the Spanish succession, as opposed to the Nine Years' War, mostly due, uh, would you say, to Marlborough's generalship? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, for the benefit of listeners, Britain was involved in the War of the Spanish Succession from 1702 to 1713. And for the British, that is remembered most in terms of Marlborough's victories, most famously the victory at Blenheim in 1704. That the British were not universally successful. Um, they did badly and in, 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 in the end failed in their intervention in Spain. Um, and some of their overseas operations were unsuccessful. The largest of all, the attempt to take Quebec in 1711 failed. So I think one's got a balance of success and failure. I mean, in, in the Nine Years' War, the British had mixed success on the continent, but they were up in the early 1690s against really a very talented general, the Marshal Duke de Luxembourg. And the French army at that stage was not only larger, but it was considerably larger, but also was really you know, very impressive. On the other hand, the strategically much more crucial uh, British mission, if you like, which was to defeat the French-backed Jacobites in Ireland, was a total success. Um, so it very much depends upon where you want to put your emphasis. What I would say is that in Marlborough's case, you find, and I discussed this at length in my book, you find not only his individual quality as both an operational commander and somebody who in tactical terms is able to control the flow of the battle and very much to read the terrain. But not only that, but there are also significant institutional improvements, not least in terms of a very effective logistical system. Why, conversely, was the British Army's performance so, or I should say relatively unsuccessful in the Spanish peninsula sector of the same war, the um, War of the Spanish Secession? 
Well, that's, again, an interesting and very important question. I think, uh, first of all, um, the French eventually wielded out a very good general, ironically, of um, you know, British antecedents, the Marshal Duc de Berrick, or Berwick, as one might otherwise call him. Um, the, um, the British suffered from very poor logistics. They're not surprisingly so much harder to buy uh, supplies. They suffered from Castilian backing for, it was a Spanish civil war, as you know, from the fact that Castile was much more uh, behind the Spanish uh, candidate, Louis XIV's um, uh, grandson, Philip Duke of Anjou, Philip V. Um, the, also, although the British proved good at amphibious operations, um, the Army-Navy coordination, which was very important in their military proficiency, they found, as others had done, that advancing into central Spain was a very difficult a military and political task. And ultimately, it proved very hard for them to translate military success. And there were military successes, including the occupation of Madrid. But they found it very difficult to translate military successes into political outcomes in terms of ending um, the Spanish Civil War on terms that were acceptable to them and their candidate. How good a general was the Duke of Cumberland? Well, um, that's a fascinating question. Um, obviously, you can point to success most clearly at Culloden and failure most obviously at Hastenbeck in 1757. Um, but I think what I would say is in his the campaigns that tend to attract the most notice, apart from Culloden, are those in the Low Countries, where, again, he's up against a very good opponent, Marshal Sachs. Um, he's part of an alliance um, which is a coalition of very different interests, Austria, the British and the Dutch being the leading players. The French are able to call on new nearby systems of supplies. And for the British in the Low Countries, there is the distraction, worse than distraction, of the Jacobite Rising of 1745 and the most important, um, actually, military dimension of that, which is that it wasn't crushed that year and therefore lasted into 46 and affected two years of the campaigning season in the Low Countries. So I think all of those plays a role. As far as um, the Culloden campaign is concerned, of course, and the previous year in 45, I mean, he... Um, how should one put it? Um, you could argue he's uh, wrong-footed by Charles Edward Stuart and therefore not understanding the axis of Charles Edward's advance is bypassed when Charles Edward gets to Derby and closer to London, London than Cumberland's army. So that would be a debit against Cumberland. On the other hand, Cumberland proves himself a much more vigorous commander than George Wade, uh, Field Marshal George Wade, the elderly, experienced commander um, who is completely outfoxed by Charles Edward. And ultimately, in 1746, in the concentration of bringing forces forward of forces in northern Scotland, in the deployment of supplies, Cumberland adopts a form of inexorable, inexorable, sorry, I'm just tired, that was terribly pronounced. Um, Cumberland, uh, uh, let's say, um, adopts a deliberative style of generalship, which works. And obviously, Charles Edward um, is unfortunate in the tactics he chooses to adopt. 
at Culloden. But I think it's fair to say that uh, he's been really put into a difficult circumstance by, by Cumberland. Uh, what were, you believe, the key variables which led to the victories uh, by British Army and Navy, for that matter, in 1759 and thereafter in the Seven Years' War? Well, again, that's a very interesting question. And, of course, one's deep, one runs together, as it were. And there's always a danger if one does that in the sense that one tries to make success or appears to make success, A, inevitable, and B, based on common features. One's running together all sorts of things. So 1759 sees both a battlefield victory over the French in modern-day Germany at Minden and a very different victory over the French on the um, heights of uh, Abraham outside Quebec. Um, so different circumstances play a role, just as indeed they did for the two great British naval victories at, of 59 at uh, Lagos and Quiberon Bay. Um, what I would say is that you have a resilience under combat, which is very important and which contemporaries, not just British contemporaries, but non-British contemporaries notice. British units would go on firing. They would go on fighting. Um, they rarely broke under the strain, even when they were put under really difficult circumstances, which was definitely the case at Minden. Um, and, and, uh, Quebec's not easy either. So there is a battlefield tactical proficiency, which I think is very important with high unit cohesion, very high firepower. British infantry were noted um, for their, indeed went on being noted, you can think of 1914 at the Battle of Mons, went on being noted for having distinctly high um, uh, fire rates. So that's very important and very demoralizing for opponents, um, both whether the opponents are relying on shock and whether they're relying on firepower. And then other features that I think are worth, uh, and just in case you think, I, you know, this is all raw for the British, the British did have deficiencies. Their cavalry was not generally brilliant. Um, but other effective and important points is that there is this willingness to act and skill in acting in a multidimensional uh, sphere. So that if you're looking at the period of the Seven Years' War, British forces are operating successfully um, in India, uh, in Germany, in Portugal in 1762, in the West Indies, and in North America. Now, that showed a very impressive ability to operate across a range of activity, which you simply do not see in the French or the Prussian or Austrian armies. The only army that really, and I personally think it's the army that really needs to be considered alongside the British army, although it has a very different social politics, but the only army that has a comparable need, opportunity, requirement, whichever term you use, but also capability to, to campaign in ver against very different opponents is that of Russia. And of course, if you're looking at Russia during the period of, that I cover in my book, uh, Russia operates uh, against Swedes, Poles, uh, Prussians, Turks in um, Persians and uh, peoples in um, 
in uh, in Central Asia. So I think what, what as well as against rebels like Pugachev rising. So I think what one's got here is to think about the impact in terms of capability and global position of a military that's capable of such a all-round capability. It might mean that in an individual war or campaign, it does poorly against an opponent who is very much specialized for particular tasks. But if you're looking at all-round capability, then I think one's really looking at the British and the Russians as the leading uh, armies uh, of that period. What explains the lack of a successful learning curve by the British Army in the American War of Independence? Well, that's a very interesting question. There's certainly no um, benign outcome in the sense that the Navy, having in 78 at the Battle of Ushant fought, uh, you know, a sort of indecisive draw with the French, and again, the same thing at Virginia Capes in 81, in 82, really delivers a very powerful verdict at the Battle of the Saints. There's no, no equivalent of that for the army. I think it's rather difficult. I mean, as you know, I've written separately on the um, War of American Independence, including most recently uh, To Win and Lose an Empire. Um, what I would suggest is we can dangerously overplay the the extent to which Yorktown throws light on tactical or operational skill. I mean, it was a serious blunder by Cornwallis. He puts himself in a position where um, if naval superiority is lost, he's had it. And indeed, that's what happens. Um, but Yorktown itself is not, I mean, it's not an equivalent of sort of a battle like Brandywine or Long Island or Guildford Courthouse or Camden. It's more in the nature of a siege. And as a siege, uh, if you're outgunned, uh, you are going to succumb at some stage or other unless you are relieved. Um, I, I would not see that as necessarily a demonstration of the deterioration or absence of a learning curve. I would see that as a result of the very specific conjunctures of the second half of 1781. What I would argue is that by the beginning of 1781, both sides were in a terrible strategic mess. The Americans were in a strategic mess because they couldn't recapture the principal British bases, New York, Savannah, Charleston, and they had apparently no way to dictate uh, to the British that the British should, as it were, stop fighting them. Uh, the British hadn't stopped when France had come into the war. They hadn't stopped when Spain had come into the war and the government had just won. The British government had just conclusively won the 1780 general election. So from the Americans, they're in a terrible strategic mess, and that doesn't tend to be brought out by American historians, who I think often lack this wider picture. And you know, as you know, as you know as well, the American continental army, American American strike army, by early eighty-one is in dire straits with mutinies among some of the line regiments, whilst the Southern army is disintegrated um, after. Um, the Battle of Camden to a considerable extent, and you know, certainly does so after Guildford Courthouse. On the other hand, the British are also in a total mess. Um, they're very much reduced to a something-must-turn-up uh, approach. Um, there is, seems to be no way in which uh, the ability to hold sections of America or the ability of Britain to go on 
fighting is going to lead the Americans to the political outcome that the British want. So I think that by the beginning of 1781, a compromise peace was inevitable. Neither side wanted a compromise peace. Um, and I mean, in the end, I mean, shock horror. And again, most people don't tend to think of it this way. I mean, a compromise peace does end up happening. I mean, there is a, a partition of British North America. Um, there is not the and the the the, um, the British, as it were, are not driven out um, tails between their legs. But that compromise is considerably worse for the British as a result of the political crisis that follows um, Yorktown. Yorktown is a classic example of a, you could say Dien Bien Phu is another example, although in a very different context, of a, of a battle that has a political context different to its military significance. The military significance is not enormous. The um, Sending a force into the Chesapeake by land was, in the absence of clear naval superiority, was at best a gamble. Uh, it's not the biggest British field army in uh, North America. That's in New York. So, you know, it's, it's not the end of the war militarily. And 1782 is a very unsuccessful year militarily for the American patriots. But on the other hand, what it does do is create um, among the British uh, ministry and in Parliament a sense that there needs to be a change of men and measures. And that creates a situation which George III loses control of politically. He has to turn to people he doesn't doesn't like, led by the Marquess of Rockingham. And Rockingham's policy is the opposition policy, which is uh, let's focus on the French and let's try and have a reasonable peace with the Americans. Um, now, that is not made inevitable by the military outcome um, of Yorktown. So I'd, I'd just like to underline that point. And a more general one, you and I have had some very fruitful discussions and you're a very experienced thinker about strategy in the 20th century. I think one of the great problems when people look at military history as a whole is that they don't really understand the strategic aspects and implications of what's going on. And I think the American War of Independence is a classic instance of that. What explains the successes of British forces in the Indian subcontinent in the period covered by the book? Well, thank you. That's a very interesting question. I mean, one's looking there at uh, two main types of opponent. One, um, forces deployed by rival Europeans, uh, which is classically the French East India Company, though there's also some fighting with the Dutch. Um, And secondly, and uh, in a more persistent fashion, conflict with hostile uh, native uh, or local uh, powers. Um, I think, first of all, there was nothing inevitable about British success. That, I think, is very important. And many of the battles were extraordinarily hard fought, particularly against the Mysore forces and in the 1780s and 90s and against the Maharatas from the 1770s through, I would say, till the 18-teens. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about fighting quality, the Maharatas at Assai, for example, in 1803, their fighting quality was as high as that of the British. And both sides took terrible casualties. So I don't think 
there's any tactical superiority, though I think it is important that the British sepoys, both British regular troops, but also the sepoys, the Indians they recruited and trained to fight like British regulars, as opposed to the Indian native allies who fought in the traditional or fashion that they're accustomed to. Again, the British interest in and experience in firepower bayonet tactics, um, I think, proves very successful on the Indian battlefield, just as it's proved successful in European battlefields. But I think there are also broader strategic and political uh, issues here. I think, first of all, um, the absence of any uh, coherent opposition to the British. In other words, there is opposition to the British, but it comes from um, uh, powers, rulers who are rivals of each other as much as of the British. I think that's very, very significant. And that point is underplayed or ignored by a lot of modern Indian commentators seeking a grievance history in their, the history of their own country. Their country didn't exist uh, in the 18th century. I mean, that's a key point. And you have a number of players there of which the British are one, the French are one, but um, Nizam of Hyderabad is one, um, the Afghans is one, there's no clear northwest boundary, uh, what remains of Mughal power is one, etc., the Mahrattas, etc., etc., the Nawab of Bengal, etc., etc., etc. So there's a variety of powers. The British are able um, to seek to maneuver in that context, just as others seek to maneuver against them. So, for example, Mysore expansionism is unpopular in the 1770s and 1780s. That wins the British allies. Maharata expansionism is unpopular. That wins the British allies. Afghan expansionism is unpopular. That wins the British allies. Conversely, there are occasions in which there's cooperation against the British 1765 through Gies Valley. So you've got this um, interplay uh, and very complex interplay of politics and warfare, which means that strategy is a very movable feast in this period in terms of how you try and define priorities and try and fix alliances. But Britain also benefits from being part of an international trading system and being able accordingly to use both uh, finance in terms of bullion and credit in order to recruit extensively Indian uh, soldiers and also to win the alliance of Indian rulers. So I think that is a, is a dynamic. Also, with its three presidencies, as, as they were called, uh, organizational bases in Bengal in the northeast with Calcutta, in the Carnatic in the southeast with Madrid um, and in Bombay um, in the west, um, what they have is a presence in three areas, an inability at times to send support from one to the other, Bengal, for example, sending support to Bombay in 1779 to 1780, uh, Madras sending support up to Bengal in 1756-57. So they've got that dimension, and that dimension is enhanced by the degree to which, unlike all of the Indian powers, uh, the British have a significant navy. I mean, there are attempts, particularly by the Angria crowd, uh, clan, I should say, A-N-G-R-I-A, um, 
on the west coast of India to develop a, a naval force, and Tipu Sultan of Mysore has an interest in that, but quite frankly, they're not really significant players. And that, again, is very important to, uh, to British strength, which is one of the reasons why a really significant strategic threat to the British is the possibility of cooperation, as in the United, what becomes the United States, between um, domestic opponents of Britain, in other words, opponents within India, and the French. So that's an issue in the early 1780s with Mysore. It's something Napoleon toys with as an idea that Napoleon toys with. He lacks the ability to think through his fantasies. Um, but the uh, ultimately, British naval strength is crucial. And you could argue, I mean, there are the hard-fought battles in the early 1780s in uh, Indian and Sri Lankan waters. Or you could argue, if you like, that the Battle of the Nile in 1798, uh, it, which destroys the major French fleet in the Mediterranean, is a crucial forward defense for India, for British India. What explains the um, lack of success in the British expedition to the Argentine in 1807? Oh, a total misreading of the situation there, the willingness of, um, uh, of the Buenos Aires population to look to Britain, a exaggeration of what an amphibious force can do in a hostile urban terrain when deployment is uh, lost and firepower is hard to uh, bring to bear. Uh, the British had the same problem in 1807 in, um, when they sent troops into Egypt, incidentally. Um, I think those are both factors. Strong resistance, I think that was very important. A not particularly impressive commander is also significant. In terms of the Peninsula campaign during the Napoleonic Wars, could there have been said to um, have been both a successful learning curve by the British and conversely an uh, unsuccessful unlearning curve by the French? Well, that's yes. That's, I'm, the latter one I like, I like a lot. Um, the French certainly didn't learn how to confront the political and military challenges of the peninsula, or they didn't learn adequately, nor, in my view, did they learn how to fight the British. Um, so they failed in both respects. I mean, obviously, there's a very good book, series of books on the Spanish dimension by Charles Esdell. There isn't really, in my view, a good overall study of the French army in the peninsula. I'm, and I think that's actually something that's missing um, in the literature, uh, which is disappointing. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of things are said that, you know, you know, I've discussed some of them that Napoleon micromanaged, that some of his commanders weren't particularly good, etc., etc. I think that none of this really captures the question of, of what goes wrong um, for the French um, and why in some areas they do obtain success, but not in others. So that's the French side. On the British side, um, interestingly enough, there was, as you know, a tradition of British military commitment to Portugal with experience of Portugal, going back, in fact, uh, to the 12th century when um, you know, the uh, English crusaders helped to liberate Lisbon from Moorish rule. But more specifically, in recent years, there had been that in the 1660s, 
um, in the 1700s and the 1760s. So, and again, difficult terrain in interior Portugal can be very dry and hot and all the rest of it. Uh, but there are amphibious bases in Porto and Lisbon in particular through which the British can direct supplies and use their amphibious strength. So those are important. What was a different task and where I think you're absolutely right to refer to the question of a learning curve is the um, problem, much more problematic task of marching into Spain, where although there's local sympathy there and sometimes uh, active military cooperation, there are many more logistical strains, the supply routes much longer. And the French are closer to their supply lines and more more resilient, if you like, though not always more resilient, but more able to mount a counter blow, as, for example, in 1812 after uh, Wellington's great victory at Salamanca. Um, but the British do get better at it. Um, they are able, they win the confidence not just to defeat the French in what you might call defensive battles like Disarco, when it's, as it were, the French attacking them and enabling the British to maximize power, but also in battles in which they take and win and use the initiative as at Salamanca or Vittoria. Um, and again, with Wellington, as with um, uh, Marlborough, you've got a great skill in reading the ground. You've got confidence in your troops. You've got the ability of units to go on fighting and fighting well, even when the battle around them appears to be disintegrating. In other words, even when they're facing um, French units in greater numbers that appear to be able to outmaneuver them or outflank them at any rate. Um, so you've got a combination of those factors. The British uh, have some mixed success, as you know, in Siegecroft, but they get better in that. And again, I think your phrase of a learning curve is a very felicitous one, because in 1813, uh, the British proved very successful in Siegecroft. So, yes, I would see a marked improvement in British fighting technique and at the, with the French at best um, a poor record and at worst an active deterioration. We give the following Philistine question, but if you wanted to compare and contrast uh, the Duke of Marlborough and the Duke of Wellington, who would you say was the better overall military commander? Um, I would say Wellington, because although Marlborough was particularly, um, uh, had great quality and of course had fought in more than one context, fought in Ireland as well as on the European mainland, um, um, I would say that Wellington had the experience of a whole range of activity, I mean, including uh, his real sort of um, first command uh, responsibilities in India. So I would give it to Wellington. But I mean, in doing that, I don't want in any way to downplay um, the skill, flexibility uh, and grit and determination that Marlborough shows. Why was British military performance so uneven in the War of 1812? Well, again, they're up against, um, at times, a good opponent, uh, variably so. I mean, obviously, on the various fronts in Canada, the Americans do not make, uh, uh, are not particularly brilliant. Um, but the... Um, 
I think in a way, I mean, this is a war the British didn't want to fight, and it was not really clear what they were strategically trying to achieve. So you've got defensive victories in Canada. Well, that's okay. We can understand that. But what exactly are they trying to do with their amphibious operations, whether against the Chesapeake, most famously in 1814, or on the Gulf Coast, most famously in 1815? The British aren't after territorial gains. You get some American historians that say that. It's just rubbish. Um, The British aren't after um, the, um, you know, I think they just want to end the war. And it's not exactly clear how best they can do that. And indeed, it has to be said that in, um, it has to be said that until, um, in, until um, 1814, the spring of 1814, uh, the main military commitment is very much against France. So that is a much more important task uh, for, them, for them to engage with. I mean, as far as the uh, 1814 operation is concerned on the Chesapeake, successful landing troops, successful engagement with largely American militia units, the British win, but they should have won that. Um, Approach on Baltimore. Baltimore is very well defended. Um, The uh, bombardment, uh, which obviously the Americans coin into a national um, uh, a national uh, anthem, you know, neither here nor there. I mean, I mean, in a sense, uh, there wasn't, and quite rightly, on the part of the British, a determination to press on there. They established that they were up against the defences. Uh, New Orleans is a bungle, a total bungle, a uh, mishandled attack, um, and it enables the war to end. As, and as you may know, I've written a whole book on the War of 1812. It enables the war to end with an impression of American uh, victory. But the practicality of it was that the Americans had gone into the war with two main strategic requirements, one to conquer Canada, um, which uh, was their clear goal, and two to you know, rectify the situation at sea. Well, they achieved neither of those. So um, I don't think one would say that it was a brilliant strategic achievement for either side. How would you compare um, success of British arms in the Battle of Waterloo as opposed to, say, the Dutch, the Prussians, and the French? Um, the Prussians did very well around Noir. Hard fighting. They did very well indeed. Uh, repeated. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the village. I mean, you're talking about very Obviously, there was initially a lot of fighting in the fields to the northeast of the village. But once they close quarter, uh, back and forth, really nasty stuff. The Prussians did well, uh, whereas they hadn't done so well at Ligny two days earlier. Uh, they stood and fought and many casualties. Um, so the Prussians, they did well. Um, the uh, Dutch and Belgians, some individual units, okay but they didn't, on the whole, cover themselves in glory. Some of the German units in the British Army uh, thought, well, uh, we're talking here about Hanoverians, for example, fought well, and the British uh, regulars fought extremely well. Uh, Where there were uh, deficiencies on the British part are, of of course, discipline among the cavalry. Um, So the cavalry charge... 
cavalry. This is not new. It's not easy to mount the cavalry charge and to then, as it were, stop it at the right point. Um, but that was uh, was a sort of not handled very well. Um, but no, the British, I thought, fought extremely well. And if you think about the attacks on their square um, afternoon, not a single square broke. Um, which is really quite an achievement given the amount of ordnance and attack being thrown at them. And they uh, held on to Hougmont so that, you know, in a way, uh, the French blundered it. It was a very bad blunder. Now, I personally think this is a matter not of low French fighting quality. I think French fighting quality was high. I think French morale was high. I think it was badly handled by Napoleon. As you know, we have discussed this. I think Napoleon is a much under, uh, sorry, much overrated military figure. Um, and the uh, at Waterloo, it, to manoeuvre around the British right, he failed to block or even reconnoitre the routes of advance the Prussians might take on a hammer blow uh, approach um, and once that had failed when Derlon's corps um, you know coming up against unbroken uh, troops um, once that had, uh, had failed uh, uh, it was silly I mean it was really silly and ultimately even if Napoleon had succeeded at that point and as you know I've published a book on Waterloo I mean again think of this in strategic terms what the most he would have done, I mean, Wellington had defence in debt. The most he would have done is pushed Wellington back. Wellington would have moved back he done the previous day after Quatre Bras without breaking, despite French attempts to harry in, um, would have simply moved backwards towards Brussels, um, helped by the fact that, as you may know, there is a lot of woodland uh, between Waterloo and Brussels, would have been very difficult operating quite country for the French. Um, and Napoleon himself would have done what then? He'd have the choice. Does he turn against the Prussians? Does he continue to attack the British? And what the hell is he in the meantime going to do with the Austrians and the Russians moving into eastern France? I mean, he, he hadn't really thought it through strategically, which is a pity because a lot of people got died as a result of his blunder. Yes, indeed. That is absolutely correct. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor Black, what would it be? Oh, the fascination and importance of military history. Too much of the their time writing books on topics that may or may not be important to them, but are not is not are not necessarily of significance either in world history and are certainly not as interesting to the general and informed public, which is that which I, with which I seek to engage. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.